Welcome back to Space Waves. I am John Kingston. I'm the editor-at-large at Freight Waves, and we're going to talk about manufacturing in space. It was interesting in preparing for this session because for so long, anybody who's followed business knows about how much automation has displaced some jobs, you know, some very, in many cases, low-level jobs that didn't get paid a lot uh, and um, it found, turned out to be that a machine could do things better. What we're going to talk about here today is automating around a very expensive job, and that would be human beings in space to manufacture and get done a lot of the work that needs to get done. So with us today is Dr. Yusuke Taguchi. He's talking to me from Chiba, Japan. He is the Director of Business Development for Kitai, which is a Japan-based company. And Kitai is targeting the space market and the manufacturing and uh, other functions that need to be done in space to get the job done. So uh, Dr. Taguchi, welcome to Space Waves. Thank you, John, and uh, thank you for letting me participate in the session today. So you have some really cool, you have some really cool videos on your website uh, showing ro what robots can do in outer space. I don't know if they were actually recorded in outer space. Maybe they were recorded in some sort of studio, but it was really fascinating to watch, and certainly I'd recommend that anybody go to the Katai website to see it, showing what these robots might be called upon to do. Just one small thing they might be called upon to do in space, and one of the reasons you want robots is because the cost of a of a person in outer space at the International Space Station or somewhere else is extremely expensive and seems ripe for automation, but it's a, a massive challenge. Why don't you talk about Gatai's founding and uh, how it started out with maybe not necessarily targeting outer space, uh, but certainly is looking at that now. Thank you, John. And uh, yes, if anyone has a chance to look at a website, I really recommend it. And we have our YouTube channel too, with lots of cool videos. Unfortunately, not recorded in space yet, but we will be planning to do that next year, as early as next summer. And um, our founder, Sho Nakanose, when he founded our company five years ago, he didn't exactly have in mind to do provide uh, develop robots for space only. But when he looked into the market to see where it would be feasible to build a, a hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand dollar robot to do tasks, um, you know, replacing a person who, for example, replacing a person who's working for like fifteen bucks an hour with a robot that costs about several hundred thousand bucks, it's probably going to take about a hundred years to make it a, a feasible commercial activity. But if you look into space. It costs just so much, even just to get a person up there. Uh, it used to be about $70 million per person riding on the Soyuz Russian vehicle. And uh, of course, you know, Elon Musk comes with SpaceX and uh, they reduced the price considerably, but it still costs about $50 million. So <laughs> it's not just a trip you can take over the weekend. And uh, above that, it even takes. Uh, tens of thousands of dollars to have one person just living on space, living in space. You know, you have to provide water, resupplies, food, clothing. You need lots of uh, uh, resupplies and uh, you need spacecraft to bring those supplies up to the station. So um, with, with uh, in-space manufacturing, uh, building things and manufacturing things in space in mind as of one of the futures, you know, if we keep on relying on people to do the job, it just t costs so much to manufacture anything. So that's where we come in and we try to provide robots to do the ta take on the tasks. 
and to provide a more cheaper and safer means of uh, conducting tasks in space. Is it too early to ask what kind of things you might manufacture, or is manufacturing, when you use that term, is that just a broad-based word to cover really any kind of uh, functional activity, whether it's changing a screw or something far more complex? Of course, uh, we'll start off with uh, uh, supporting the astronauts with their daily chores inside or outside the space station. But in terms of manufacturing, uh, what the industry sees right now is one of the big things is, uh, for example, uh, fiber optic cables. Um, there's a cable called ZBLAN. They say that if you manufacture it in, uh, in zero gravity, it enhances the capability that it can uh, transfer information on a cable. And also, uh, one of the things that uh, the industry sees is uh, making uh, medications in space, especially those that can only be reproduced in zero gravity. So you're talking about applications that would be manufactured in space and then brought back to Earth for use down here. Exactly. But uh, they don't always have to be um, uh, brought back down to the Earth for sales. Uh, we could also maybe manufacture satellites in space. Because, um, for example, you know, when you launch a satellite on a rocket, uh, you have to make it rigid and sturdy enough so that it can uh, withstand the harsh uh, launch environment. Lots of uh, heavy shaking, uh, the sound is extreme. And, uh, but if you think about the, the lifetime of the satellite, you build it to last, for example, one satellite, you wanted to uh, do Earth observations for 10 years. But you do have to make it so it's strong enough that it can withstand the first eight minutes of launch. But that sturdiness, that rigid, rigidity is not necessary when, you, when you're in space. So if you can reduce that um, extra hard work that you have to build a satellite to be, make it strong enough to withstand the launch environment, you, could, you just remove all that if you can build a satellite in space with no launch. Now, who do you see as the ultimate customers for this? Would they tend to be um, a, a NASA, uh, a government agency, or like I know you, you, you can talk a little bit later about your association with JAXA, or is it going to be a private entity like a SpaceX, or, or what kind of combination of the two? Well, um, unfortunately, in the industry, there's still more sovereign or uh, agency uh, activities going on. So our first customers will be the agencies like NASA, JAXA, ESA. But um, eventually, there will be more and more, as people see that um, it doesn't cost that much to have activities done in space, there will be more commercial activities going on. So it'll be, of course, uh, beginning with the commercial space uh, entities like, of course, SpaceX, uh, NanoRacks, uh, Axiom space, but eventually I think the market will grow uh, bigger and bigger and we'll have more, uh, more uh, participation in the space industry from non-traditional space companies. Now, we're, everything seems so theoretical, but the reality is that I think, that, not I think, but I know that you've got a, a, a trial test with JAXA, which is the Japan uh, Space Agency, sometime next year. Uh, so this is going to be real. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, um, actually, um, this opportunity that we we're going to have is not through JAXA, but uh, actually through NASA. And it'll be brokered by uh, a company called NanoRacks. They're the first company in the world 
to uh, commercialize space, but they will be launching their own commercial airlock, uh, a special room that connects uh, the inside of the station to the outside. We will have our first uh, in-space demonstration of our robot in that room. Uh, it's called the Bishop. Uh, and we're scheduled to launch uh, hopefully next summer. So the, the, the bishop goes up today, and then your demonstration goes up over the summer. Exactly. And in your demonstration of your robot, what will it do? Um, of course, you know, we want to demonstrate how capable or how dexterous our robot is. So what we're going, we have two experiments uh, in plan. One is to demonstrate that our robot is capable of uh, assisting the astronauts with their daily chores. So one thing we will do, uh, something called IVA, it's short for intravehicular activity, activity inside uh, a vehicle. So it'll be like uh, pushing buttons, turning knobs, pulling in and out uh, cables, uh, typical chores that the astronauts do every day inside the station. And uh, on the other side, uh, our second experiment, we want to show the industry that our robot is capable of doing things even outside the station. Unfortunately, we're not going to have our experiment outside uh, this time, but um, activities that would be uh, conducted outside. Uh, and one of them will be uh, something called in-space assembly. And we will uh, put together uh, a structure and add like panels to it, representing uh, sort of like a, a solar, a huge solar panel or antenna. Well, it's a, it's exciting times. Now, of course, one thing we always uh, will ask about here on our various ways presentation is funding, because a lot of the more interesting ventures out there are funded by some kind of private capital or private equity. This is a kind of business that seems you know, really exciting, but for the future, not the kind of thing that looks like it's going to be generating recurring revenue uh, for any any anytime real soon. So what kind of time frame do your investors have? Presumably, they went in for the long haul. <laughs> they sure did. And they have uh, much confidence in our company that we'll be able to do what we're telling them. Um, up to date, uh, we've uh, collected about 5.5 million US dollars as of uh, June 2019. And um, we do actually have some revenue from uh, other space uh, companies, but uh, they're not recurring yet. Uh, we're not, uh, we don't have a surplus yet, but um, uh, we are planning to have our first uh, recurring uh, revenue by 2023. And, and what would that be? Uh, how, what, what kind of space-directed space operation would be able to provide recurring revenue in just you know, a mere two, two to three years? Revenue that we're looking for is uh, something related to what we I mentioned before, in-space assembly, or in a more larger sense, it's called uh, OSAM. It's short for On-Orbit Servicing Assembly and Manufacturing. So anything that's uh, manufactured or assembled in space, that would be one of the first uh, big revenues that we were looking forward to. Right. And the kind of applications, I guess, that would come out of some of these first manufacturing processes would be really high quality things. I mean, you're not going to put these kind of fiber optics just running from home to home. There must be some kind of demand for, I'll call it super duper fiber optics made in space uh, that you can meet that need. And that must carry a fairly hefty price tag. Yes. Um, actually, I'm not too... Um familiar with how, how much these things cost, but um, they're saying that it's feasible 
to manufacture it in space and bring it back down and sell it on Earth uh, that so much that it could provide such enhanced capabilities than what you can uh, use on Earth, uh, what you can manufacture on Earth. In, on your website, you know, we talk here about the International Space Station. That's going to be your first demonstration project. But you've got a whole scenario uh, of, of possible usages for your robotics, including uh, base stations on the moon or base stations on Mars. Uh, is the idea here that your robotics will be so adaptable that you can just simply, I won't say simply because none of this is going to be simple, <laughs> but take that and scale it into other uses, uh, whether it be a base station or some kind of other international space station? Yes, well, um, actually we're working on a couple sides of uh, building our robot. Uh, one is uh, a multi-purpose dexterous robot that can do many tasks, multiple tasks in space. And uh, that, that one, uh, we actually use it more uh, with remote control. So there is an operator behind that robot actually controlling the robot. But on the other end, we're also developing a robot that's more special purpose and uh, with more autonomy. And so uh, unfortunately, you know, people have this uh, crazy idea, well, I won't say crazy, but uh, expectations that, you know, having AI or deep learning on robot can, it makes the robot can do almost anything possible. But uh, in reality, uh, the extent that the robot can do is probably play chess. <laughs> so, you know, the technology is not there yet. Yeah. So um, just having a robot working autonomously, it actually um, reduces what it, what it can actually do. So that's where we have uh, human cognizance, uh, human recognition behind the robot so it can enhance the capabilities of the robot. Because for example, um, if you send a robot to Mars for the first time, you know, you can, um, you could teach it to understand a few things, but um, it, when it encounters something for the first time, the robot won't be able to understand what it's seeing. It has no idea. And then all of a sudden it, it can't do anything anymore because it doesn't know what, what it's looking at. So uh, in such a case where you, if you have a person telling the robot, this is a rock, please hold on to it and lift it up, you know, all of a sudden uh, your robot is capable of doing that. And uh, so that's where we always have in mind where there's a mixture of autonomy and uh, human recognition behind it. And it's called uh, supervised autonomy these days. So let me ask you whether any, have you developed any robotics where you found that actually you're going to be able to apply them here on Earth? I mean, we talked about manufacturing things out there to be brought back, uh, but are you also finding that you're, are, is there any possibility of taking your business and scaling into sort of more terrestrial robotics? Actually, you know, we always had that in mind, but uh, because it, it wouldn't be uh, a a feasible commercial activity to have to build robots starting for terrorist applications, we started off in space. But we always have in mind that we want to put our robots into applications back down on Earth. And there's, uh, we already uh, have uh, captured some interest from uh, some industries like, of course, uh, you know, decommissioning nuclear power plants. That's a big thing in Japan. And also for maybe uh, deep, uh, deep sea excavations 
or any environment that it would normally be uh, extremely dangerous or almost impossible for people to go or do. Okay, beyond your company, what is the pace of change in robotics today? Is this an industry that even six months later is almost unrecognizable because of the gains they're making, or is it maybe moving a little slower than you would have expected? The, um, the public expectations are very high, actually, especially in Japan, because uh, uh, the, the culture, we're very used to having uh, the, the idea of having robots helping people or in our everyday lives. So, you know, people in Japan, they, when they tell that, when they tell you, uh, when, when we tell them that we're making robots, they say, oh, cool, can it do this, can it do this? But of course, unfortunately, it can hardly do any of that. But um, uh, actually, uh, development for robots, you know, there was a high expectation one time when AI and deep learning came out. And uh, there was public recognition that uh, robots will be able to do very anything, and will how will uh, people will be threatened by Terminator soon. But <laughs> and um, actually, I get that question very often at uh, customs when I <laughs> and people I tell them I work for a, a robot company. They tell me, "Oh, when is the Terminator coming?" I tell them, "Don't worry, not at least for our lifetime, because there's still so much development that's necessary to have." technology that advanced. Wish we had a little more time, but we're gonna to have to wrap that up. I do wanna turn it over to Dr. Taguchi one last time. What's the main thing we should be looking at at Katai? Well, uh, this coming year, we're gonna have lots of uh, uh, progress coming, and especially starting off with our experiment on the ISS next year. So if you could tune in or keep an eye out on uh, what's happening at Gitai, uh, if you, you could check our website at gitai.tech. Uh, Gitai.tech. Um, uh, we'll be posting our updates and videos of our company or of our robot. So if you could tune in, that'd be great. Yeah, do go there and, and just watch the robot videos for now. That you can do right now. Uh, they're very fascinating. And uh, I do want to thank Dr. Yusuke Taguchi from Gitai for joining us here today on Spaceways. I've been very happy to host this conversation. I'm John Kingston, the editor at Larger Freightwaves. Stick around for more with Spaceways. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, John.